Hey, ladies and gentlemen, I am so excited about this podcast episode. We're going to talk about Humana Vitae, but we're not just going to talk about the church perspective, but we're also going to talk about what was going on in society as well. So we can look back at the history and really kind of contemplate how powerful this encyclical is. So come on and listen to what I have to say. Hello, Catholic Divas. Welcome to Cycles and Sanctity Podcast. I am Mama Jane, wife to Steve for almost 37 years, mother of six wonderful children, fertility awareness instructor, and a Catholic mindset coach. Are you confused about your cycle? Do you want to learn how charting your cycles can give you insight, not only to your health, but your mental and emotional state as well? And most importantly, using this information to draw closer to God and pursue your path to holiness? If you answered yes, then you are in the right place. Go grab your journal and your favorite pen and let's do this. Welcome back, Catholic Divas. Today we are going to be talking about Humanae Vitae, St. Pope Paul VI, wonderful encyclical that many people haven't read. So we're going to get into a little bit of church history, a little bit about world history, and I hope you stay for the whole thing. As I mentioned, many Catholics of the 21st century have never even heard or read this encyclical, Humanae Vitae. And so, therefore, they don't appreciate the effect that it had on the history of the church. And many people have only been taught that the Catholic Church is against birth control, but they don't understand why or how it fits into the history of salvation. Ever since the conversion of Constantine in 312 AD, when Christianity became the legal religion of the state, the Church has had to defend its position on being the guardian and the interpreter of both the law of the gospel and natural law. It's also had to fight for the unity of the Church as early as 250 AD with Cyprian and the Council of Carthage, and especially with the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. It was with these three points, the Catholic Church being the guardian and the interpreter of the moral law, how the Church is called to encourage the state to practice this moral law, and how to be obedient to the moral teachings of the Catholic Church, that we can look at the importance of Humanae Vitae. The societal movement of contraception began in actually the 1860s, and all Christian churches resisted it. But in 1930, the Anglican Church broke away at its Lambeth Conference with the Resolution 15, which stated, Nevertheless, in those cases where there is such a clearly felt moral obligation to limit or avoid parenthood, and where there is a morally sound reason for avoiding complete abstinence, the conference agrees that other methods may be used, provided that this is done in the light of the same Christian principles. In response to this bold move of the Anglican Church to open the door for individual decisions of conscience, Pope Pius XI wrote an encyclical Casti Canubi, reminding the faithful that, quote, any use whatsoever of matrimony exercised in such a way that the act is deliberately frustrated in its natural power to generate life is an offense against the law of God and of nature and those who indulge in such a branded with the guilt of grave sin. And thus, here comes the debate among Christian churches on whether artificial contraception should be moral or not. Many Protestant denominations began to agree with in the context of the marriage. Contraception is allowable. And if you talk to many Christians outside of the Catholic Church, that is their concept and their mindset. 
And in the meantime, in the secular world, before World War I, Margaret Sanger, who is best known as the founder of Planned Parenthood, also founded another organization called the National Birth Control League. She was a eugenicist who divided the world into the fit and the unfit. It was Margaret Sanger who was the true visionary of the pill. But it was Gregory Pincus who was the lead scientist on the pill. When he attempted to experiment with rabbits and in vitro, he was actually shut down from the university that he was working with and was not accepted in any other university due to his scientific practices. And therefore, he went and opened his own private laboratory that was privately funded by a woman named Catherine Dexter McCormick. Here in this private lab, he could not only create the contraceptive pill, but also master the intra vitro process, furthering the idea that only the fit should procreate. In the winter of 1950, Sanger and Pincus met, and then they joined forces to make this vision a reality. Alongside Dr. Pincus was a brilliant endocrinologist, Dr. James Brown. You might have remembered that name when I interviewed Sue Eck. Dr. Brown's research helped discover the cervical mucus in a woman's body. And through his research, he found there was a link between this mucus and the hormonal level depending upon the day of a woman's cycle. It was this research that Dr. Pinkin used to develop the contraceptive pill to hinder the natural hormonal levels. And to find women to test this new contraception drug, Dr. Pincus partnered with Dr. John Rock, who specialized in infertility. 70 women were tested, but that was not enough to get the proper results for the FDA. They then tested women who were in the Worcester Insane Asylum. And since they didn't need these women's consent, and it was in 1954, after writing to McCormick, that Dr. Pincus got the Puerto Rican government to allow them to test this new drug on these women there. And the FDA was anxiously waiting for the results to approve and have available contraceptive pill. And it's interesting because Anthony Fisher, the Archbishop of Sydney, explains this was so clever to have a woman take a drug every day of every year of her fertile life for years. And this is a drug that drug companies dream of. And if you think about that, how the drug companies have changed, it was because of this contraceptive pill. But see, once Dr. James realized what Dr. Pincus was using as research to completely shut down a woman's body through these drugs, and Dr. Brown did not agree with that. And so he left and he went to Australia in the early 1960s to join Dr. John and Dr. Lynn Billings. The doctor's billings, of course, they had been beginning their work in 1953, 70 years ago. And Sue Eck talked about this in her interview that her, their parish priest wanted them to do some research on infertility. And of course, Dr. John's response was, well, I'm a neurosurgeon, go find an OBGYN. But again, his priest recognized that he was a scientist and he really wanted a good scientist to start doing this. And of course, Dr. Evelyn was a pediatrician. And Dr. Evelyn explained later, it was a movement of faith initially, and we felt called to this work. And as you heard from Sue Eck, that Dr. John kind of agreed, okay, well, we'll do this for three months. And then 50 years later, they were still working on this. But Dr. Lynn explained further that Dr. John realized very quickly that the couples were using the rhythm method, which of course isn't reliable in so many cases. And so that was unsatisfactory. The rhythm method had been discovered over 100 years before, and it's basically based on a 28-day cycle. 
thinking that every woman ovulates on day 14. But see, in reality, only 28% of women actually have a 28-day cycle. And therefore, the rhythm method is very unreliable. And it'll later be noted that the unreliability of the rhythm method was one of the reasons that the Catholic theologians were looking to morally approve the pill. And then later, Dr. Eric Obeled joined Dr. Billings and Dr. Brown. He suspected and he discovered in 1959 that a woman's different types of cervical mucus could determine the fertile phase and the infertile phase of their cycle. In the meantime, in the United States, the FDA approved the pill in 1962, and 1.2 million American women were using the pill by 1962. And in 1963, Dr. John Rock, a Catholic, wrote a book called The Time Has Come, A Catholic Doctor's Proposal to End the Battle Over Birth Control. This book supported the use of the contraceptive pill for Catholics. And from 1962 to 1965, 2.3 million American women were on the pill. Then, on June 21st, 1963, Cardinal Giovanni Bastista Montini, who was the Archbishop of Milan, became Pope Paul VI. As Paul Bunsen describes in his book, St. Pope Paul VI, he quotes, From the start, Paul had this upon his shoulders, not only the weight of years of expectation, but the enormous task of bringing a successful conclusion in error-defining counsel that he had not started. He would then have the duty of guiding the church in its aftermath, a period of shocking social and political change, including the sexual revolution. So remember, Paul VI had come in Pope John XXIII had actually started the Second Vatican Council, but he died before it finished. And so Paul VI came in and had to prepare for that. And it's interesting because Pope Paul VI had been prepared for this work. He'd spent over 30 years in, in the Vatican as a Secretariat of State. And he'd also been, again, at the assignment of the Archbishop of Milan, which really prepared him for the pastoral work that he was going to need to do as a pope. And as I mentioned, Pope John XXIII began the Second Vatican Council. So first session was October 13, 1962. And it was his intention to be updating and renewal. And it was Pope John XXII's desire that this would be a council that would affirm the gospel in modern times rather than condemn the errors of modern times. And the first session ended in December 7, 1962, and then Pope John the Twenty Third died in June 1963. So again, like I said, Paul the Sixth understood how important this council was to the former Pope, and therefore he then opened a second session, September 29th, 1963, and that ended on December 4th, 1963. And then there was a third session, September 14th to November 21st of 1964, and then the final session was September 14th. December 9th, 1965. And when the Second Vatican Council closed, there was great anticipation to implement the reforms that were talked about. And although the discussion and the understanding of the church's teaching on birth control were given to a papal commission by Pope John XXIII, the fathers of the Second Vatican Council knew the importance of conjugal love and the transmission of life within the marriage. And they actually included it in one of the Vatican documents called Gaudium et Space, 
in English is the Pastoral Constitution on the Church in the Modern World. In paragraph 51, you can look this up, it states, Hence, when the question of harmonizing conjugal love with the responsible transmission of life, the moral aspects of any procedure does not depend solely on sincere intentions or an evaluation of motives, but must be determined by objective standards. These, based on the nature of the human person and his acts, preserve the full sense of mutual self-giving and human procreation in the context of true love. Such a goal cannot be achieved unless the virtue of conjugal chastity is sincerely practiced. Relying on these principles, sons of the church may not undertake methods of birth control which are found blameworthy by the teaching authority of the Catholic Church and its unfolding of the divine law. Unquote. So in the end notes of that document, the fathers acknowledged the papal authority by stating, and this is a quote, certain questions which need further and more careful investigation have been handed over at the command of the Supreme Pontiff to a commission for the study of population, families, and births in order that after it fulfills its function, the Supreme Pontiff may pass judgment. With the document of the magisterium in this state, this Holy Synod does not intend to propose immediately concrete solutions. So, see, the council was aware that the issues of population and family and births were not in their scope, and they were awaiting the final judgment of the Holy Father, recognizing him as the ultimate guardian and interpreter of the deposit of faith. Pope John XXIII had begun this papal birth control commission, and in the beginning with him, it consisted of six people, and four of them were lay people. After his death, Pope Paul VI expanded that, and first it was 13 members, and then it grew up to 58 members, including 34 laypeople, of whom four of them were married women. And from the beginning, this commission had the underlying goal of justifying contraception and changing the church teaching. The Secretary General of the Commission, who was pro-contraception priest, Reverend Henri de Red Matin, who worked in the Holy See Secretariat of State, and who, according to Dr. Germain Grises, skillfully managed the session. Dr. John Cavanaugh, an American psychiatrist, told Father John Ford, who also was on the commission, that for the lay people, it was a surprise to hear the theologians discussing the idea of the church teachings on contraception could even change. And it was, quote, the first time in their lives that they thought that contraception might, or at least about to become morally permissible. When the commission came to an end, there was great confusion as to the true recommendations because there were leaks to the press. Many faithful Catholics thought that indeed contraception would be acceptable. The confusion came about because of the main document, which was titled in Latin, and excuse my Latin, Schema Documenti was called the Majority Report. And then there was another document titled in Latin, Status Questionis Doctrina Ecclesia Status, which was known as the Minority Report, written by those who opposed the recommendation that contraception could indeed be moral. However, the counterpart was actually titled the document, I don't even, I can't even say these words, Regulationes Nativitam, and it was labeled the Majority Rebuttal. One cardinal who saw the potential errors of the commission was Cardinal Carroll, who later became St. Pope John Paul II. See, he had already written a book in 1960 called Love and Responsibility. 
So he called a group of moral theologians from Krakow to study and comment on the issue. And the three primary questions that this group wanted to address was, number one, does the church have the right to make authoritative pronouncement on matters of morality and natural law? And number two, is her teaching on this subject infallible or not? And number three, can this teaching change? So this Krakow document in the the moral theologians led by Cardinal Carroll understood how the moral theologians on the papal commission could justify contraception. Their theology and their, and their philosophy were off. And so this memorandum composed by a group of moral theologians from Krakow was aimed to set them straight and reaffirm the church's condemnation of contraception. So then on July 25th, 1968, Pope Paul VI published the encyclical Humanae Vitae, and the world was shocked because he did not accept the commission's recommendation that contraception was morally admissible. In this encyclical, Paul VI reaffirmed the twofold purpose of the marital act, unitive and procreative. And I've mentioned this in past episodes, and he explained that the two purposes cannot be separated. But unfortunately, in the United States, before Humana Vitae was published, there was already a number of priests who were propagating the idea that contraception was morally admissible. The priest who was considered the spokesman for these dissenting theologians was Father Charles Curran, who taught at the Catholic University of America from 1965 to 1968. The main idea for him and for all of those who dissented, like the organization Catholics for Choice, was that Humana Vitae was not infallible and therefore dissent was permissible. Until he was dismissed from the university, he propagated this dissension for many generations of students. And these are the people who think practicing contraception is an individual choice of conscience and sees no problem with receiving Holy Communion while they're on the pill. There was another priest also in the United States. His name was Theodore Herzberg, and he was the president of the Notre Dame University from 1952 to 1987. And he was well known for his civil rights activism and his ability to grow Notre Dame's reputation as a leading college in America. But his dissent of Humana Vitae consisted in hosting population control advocates at Notre Dame. He also contributed to teaching several generations of Catholics that artificial contraception is permissible for practicing Catholics. And then in Canada, there was a dissent led by Father Gregory Baum. He was a German-born priest who had come to Canada after World War II. He actually attended the Second Vatican Council and was a big critic of priestly celibacy, and he also promoted contraception and homosexuality. He was the most outspoken critic in Canada when Humana Vitae was published, and he helped the Canadian bishops adopt a position of open dissent, and it was called the Winnipeg Statement against Humana Vitae. The irony of it is, is that Father Baum later left the priesthood, he married an ex-nun, and then he had a homosexual relationship for years. In Europe, critics, including Cardinal Sunens in Belgium, he had been friends and served with Pope Paul VI when he was Cardinal Montini, but because of Humana Vitae, their friendship was never the same. He thought the encyclical was a non-collegial act, and other European theologians were also against Humana Vitae, including Karl Rayner and Hans Kung. Hans Kung rejected the doctrine of papal infallibility, 
And there were many, many critics worldwide that used this idea that because Paul VI had not consulted the College of Cardinals and ignored the commission's recommendations, therefore this encyclical was not infallible. But like many people, there were people who understood and saw the beauty of Humana Vitae. And one of these people in the United States is Dr. Janet Smith. She's written two beautiful books on it. The first book she wrote was Why Humana Vitae Was Right in 1993. And then she wrote a second book, Why Humana Vitae Is Still Right in 2018. And she recognized that this document is infallible because it reaffirms the church's teaching on marriage and the marital act. In fact, many have said that this document was prophetic in its understanding of a society that accepts contraception. And now, over 50 years later, we can acknowledge just how true this prophecy is. See, Pope Paul VI was guided by the Holy Spirit, and he could almost see the ramifications of what a society would be like if it welcomed contraception. He saw the importance of having the twofold purpose of the marital act, unitive and procreative, always together. And he saw the importance of using natural law and natural order of a woman's reproductive cycle to be used when a couple deems that there is a serious reason not to be open to life, was written as a warning, but also as an encouragement at the same time. Pope Paul VI saw that the future would be like if a society, and like I said, especially the Catholic Church, accepted contraception. Let me tell you some of the things that he predicted. First, he predicted that our morals would be lowered. He saw how contraception would open a wide way of marital infidelity. And in fact, when one looks at the statistics of divorce rate in a simple 10-year period between 1965 and 1975, the rate jumped from 25% to 50%. And no other time in history has divorce ever doubled in such a short amount of time. But see, more than that, Paul VI, like a good shepherd, was concerned for the young and with contraception in their hand would be exposed to greater temptation. Pope Paul VI also understood that when a man is unfaithful, it's because he has forgotten the reverence due of a woman. And while feminist critics may object to the Pope's acknowledgement that her physical and emotional equilibrium, the Pope wanted to remind men of their duty to protect, to guard, and to care for women. Additionally, Pope Paul VI was concerned with the danger, quote, the danger of this power passing into the hands of public authorities who care little for the precepts of moral law. See, he had World War II and all of its atrocities still in the recent memory, and this was a grave concern. Finally, Pope Paul VI also wanted to remind the faithful that man's power has its limits, and he wanted to caution that it would be wrong to go beyond those limits. He carefully stated that these limits are to bring reverence to the whole human organism and its natural functions. Although he doesn't state it by name, Pope Paul VI seems to have been able to see the danger of what the future would hold when the infertility industry developed. Procedures such as in vitro fertilization, sperm donors, and even surrogate mothers birthing other people's children are all acts that defile the unitive aspect of the marital act. Pope Paul VI understood how unpopular this message would be, but he reminded the church that she, just like her founder, Jesus Christ, is destined to be a sign of contradiction. 
He challenged the church in this document that it is the duty which is imposed on her to proclaim humbly but firmly, quote, the entire moral law, both natural and evangelical. He encouraged the church to be- to the benefits of this teaching in that couples would need to practice self-discipline and thus repel inordinate self-love. He also wrote about how important the growth of chastity education was for the common good of society. And he appealed to public authorities to never allow the morals of their people to be undermined, but that the family is the primary unit in the state. Isn't this all interesting of where we are today? And he saw this in 1968. In paragraph 24, he addressed the men of science to study the natural rhythms in order that the couples would have a secure basis of the limitations of offspring. And it was this challenge that the natural family planning movement began to grow. See, Dr. John and Lynn Billings had already developed the Billings ovulation method and were teaching it throughout Pacifica. And still today, medical professionals who read this encyclical are encouraged to study the natural rhythm of a woman's body. And so today we've discovered that the woman's cycle is considered her fifth vital sign. When you go to a doctor and you go into the nurse's station, they usually check your temperature and your weight and your blood pressure and your oxygen. Well, understanding a woman's cycle is her fifth vital sign. And because it can indicate many other underlying health issues besides fertility. And we've talked about this. In paragraph 26, Pope Paul VI encouraged a family apostolate where married couples would share with other married couples the beauty of this lay vocation. And this calling was accepted by John and Sheila Kipley, who established the Couple to Couple League in 1971 in the United States. The Couple to Couple League organization has couples who are trained in the symptothermo method of natural family planning. In other words, one of the things that they do primarily is they take the temperature of a woman in the morning before she rises, as well as checking the cervical mucus and also the cervical position. Pope Paul VI's heart and soul were in this encyclical, and it was the last one that he wrote. He could see the potential ramifications this encyclical would have. And he wrote in the encyclical to his brother priests, and I'm going to quote, I appeal to you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and there be no dissensions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. He also understood what he was asking of the Christian couples. And so he exhorted the priests again to quote, unquote, teach married couples the necessary way of prayer and prepare them to approach more often the great faith, the sacraments of the Eucharist and of penance. Let them never lose heart because of their weakness. Pope Paul VI is full of hope at the end of this encyclical. He addresses not only his brethren priests, but even the whole church with this statement. I'm going to quote it. And we are convinced that this truly great work will bring blessings both on the world and on the church, for man cannot attain that true happiness for which he yearns with all the strength of his spirit unless he keeps laws which the Most High God has engraved in his very nature. Once this encyclical was published, like I mentioned, dissent came from everywhere. And it was particularly disheartening for Paul VI to see the dissent come from the College of Bishops. From Cardinal Sunen's point of view, Paul VI 
lacked the spirit of collegiality and shared responsibility. But see, Pope Paul VI knew that if he brought it to the College of Bishops, there would be a dramatic split and he couldn't jeopardize that. So he chose to shoulder this responsibility as the Vicar of Christ. In his humility at one point when he tried to maintain his relationship with Cardinal Sunans, Pope Paul VI got on his knees and begged his forgiveness. And then he asked him, pray for me in my weakness. Isn't that beautiful? The weight of this encyclical was on his shoulders of Paul VI. And like our Lord Jesus Christ, he accepted this cross. Like I mentioned, the dissent was deafening, not only from the secular media, but then also those critics mentioned above that I I talked about in Canada, in Europe, in the United States. The Catholic universities were teaching the dissent. The bishops and the priests were telling couples it was up to their own conscience to use contraception. And yet Pope Paul VI never stopped speaking about it. Every chance he had, he would talk about the importance of defending life, promoting marriage, helping families in the modern world. Pope Paul VI's faithfulness to guarding the truth was rewarded through both miracles that gave the sanctification of his beatification and his canonization. And we can now call him St. Pope Paul VI. It's been over 50 years since Humana Vitae was published, and it's actually probably considered just as controversial as the Council of Trent. Those who've chosen to follow the dissent have disregarded the authority of the Pope on other issues as well. And those who have seen the truth in this encyclical have not only obeyed the Pope, but also embraced its teaching and have defended marriage and the sanctity of life. Humana Vitae and Paul VI have played a major role in the modern church history. The canonization of Pope Paul VI in 2018 proved the importance of this document. And also those who became popes after him continue to remind the church of the truth of Humana Vitae, specifically St. Pope John Paul II, our longest serving pope in modern times. He continued to develop the theology of the body, which I've talked about many times as well. The boldness of Paul VI in writing this in the time of a turmoil and chaos is truly admirable. As the worlds of science and sociology came to understand the truths of Humana Vitae, perhaps the moral law of which the Catholic Church is the guardian will also once again be honored. And as Pope Paul VI hoped, blessings will be on the world and on the church. And so, dear Catholic brothers and sisters, I hope you will take the time and read this wonderful document for yourself. I hope that the Holy Spirit will enlighten your mind, heal your heart, and move your will to choose natural family planning and the twofold purposes of the marital embrace, which is unitive and procreative. Let me close with the blessing of St. Paul. May the blessing of God of peace make you perfect in holiness. May he preserve you whole and entire, spirit, soul, and body, irreproachable at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Pope St. John Paul II, pray for us. Pope St. Paul VI, pray for us. Until next week, God bless you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I want to invite you to the Uniquely Beautifully You program. The registration form is in the show notes, and I look forward to serving you.